A very warm welcome to the recommencement of our Wednesday evening talks after a break. So let us now uh, commend ourselves to our Lord in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, this evening we're going to look at a book which has appeared recently uh, in English. Um, authored as you can see there at my own copy here uh, by Benedict the 16th and Cardinal Sarah from the depths of our hearts priesthood celibacy and the crisis of the Catholic Church and we're going to just look at the first section of the book um, this was written exclusively by Benedict the Sixteenth, and it's entitled "The Catholic Priesthood." And um, apart from indicating his name, as we can see here clearly uh, in the English uh, version of the book, it's quite clear when you actually examine the text that it was written by Benedict. You can see the theology of Ratzinger, and although the book is a translation of the, from the original language, um, it is still, uh, nevertheless, the, the, the theology of Ratzinger appears quite clearly through it. And um, Benedict doesn't look at the Catholic from every conceivable angle. It's actually it's, it's not a very long section that Benedict's written, but, but it's very deep in its analysis. But um, obviously Benedict recognises himself that he can't look at every aspect, just those key aspects that are certainly worth considering. But there are other books published, especially by Ignatius Press, which look at the whole question of celibacy, which is a main item, really, a main topic of discussion uh, in this book and one of the books I would recommend to you um, is called The Apostolic Origins of Priestly Celibacy by Christian Coccini from the Society of Jesus. Um, very very good book and there's another book by um, Cardinal Stickler smaller book on celibacy uh, small concise and uh, very well written book I have to say and these books and other books argue that celibacy uh, of the clergy comes from apostolic times and it's something that can't be just sort of swept under the carpet all of a sudden um, and should remain for the clergy um, another interesting book on celibacy, and I'm not, um, I'm indicating here studies on the theology of celibacy, 
on the church's teaching, on the practice of celibacy. There is, of course, much written on the spirituality of celibacy, especially in books on the Catholic priesthood. But another book here, you can just see it, uh, it's called Clerical Celibacy East and West by Roman College, who is a, a priest of the Apostolic uh, Exarchate for the Ukrainian Catholics. Um, an absolutely fascinating book about um, especially the legislation regarding celibacy East and West and it indicates that the practice of the West is actually older than the practice of the East. In the East um, it's true bishops, uh, monks can, uh, alone can become bishops, celibates alone can become bishops and married men can be added to priesthood but they still live with their wives but the oldest disciplines actually that uh, um, of the West that, celibate, that they have to be celibate once you're ordained and eventually of course it developed from you know you they accepted um, the church accepted uh, single men who weren't attached to a wife for obviously obvious reasons and very practical reasons actually so that one could give oneself completely um, to the work of the Lord. Um, the book uh, this of um, Pope Benedict and Sada from the depths of our hearts was written in response to the Amazonian Synod from the other year and um, there were some rumours that celibacy might be watered down but the Holy Father, the Pope, actually didn't do this. But nevertheless, Benedict XVI's and Scarnosaurus book is still of great value to us to meditate on the priesthood and importance of celibacy. We're looking at the roots, uh, the theological roots of celibacy in connection with the sacred priesthood uh, in particular. And um, it's not a polemical work. It is a work certainly from a personal point of view, but it's from the point of view of the Catholic Church from scripture, theology, the church fathers, sacramentology. Um, and I want to look alone at Benedict's contribution to the book. Of course, in any book, one should really look at all the parts of a book to, to um, gain an overview. But I think what Benedict said in itself is, is quite self-contained and uh, I was particularly interested in this book and to give a talk uh, on this book because what Benedict has written the priesthood is, among other things, clearly placed within a liturgical context. Um, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating to discuss celibacy and priesthood in the context of, of, of liturgy. Uh, of course, the priesthood, you can't, the liturgy is central to the life of a priest. But to discuss that aspect of celibacy and liturgy, I thought was quite an interesting um, aspect. So, without further ado, let's turn now to page 23. If you happen to have your copies of the books, uh, the book at home, uh, I'm just going to go through the book, actually. And... Benedict talks about, he begins to talk about the 
methodology um, entailed in talking about the theology of priesthood. So he begins his discussion through, from the, the viewpoint, the, the foundational um, theology of the priesthood. And he says that there's a, actually a foundational methodological problem with how the Old Testament is being interpreted. You may remember from our talks on the liturgical theology of Pope Benedict that uh, the Old Testament was seen as preparation for the New Testament. That the, that the Old Testament, also in, the, in theology and biblical interpretation, is given a Christological uh, interpretation. Um, and here we see in this painting, it's quite an interesting painting from the early 1530s, which um, I believe is in Edinburgh. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating um, painting because it shows um, it's by Hans Holbein the Younger, uh, and it's uh, an analogy of the Old and New Testaments. Uh, it's in the Scottish National Gallery. That's where it is. And you have here, you have Christ uh, risen on one hand and death on the other. Um, and you have man uh, who is given the commandments by God uh, on one side. And then you have John the Baptist on the other side. You have the, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and John the Baptist rather. And John the Baptist points the way to man to Christ. You see in the the, the um, background there, the, the serpent on the staff, the stick, uh, the staff of Moses, who receives the law at the top, and then Christ on the other side, at the top, Moses the law, and then grace, the law and grace. Um, so you've got these contrasts and comparisons, the Old Testament pointing uh, towards the new. Well, then it says that the Christological interpretation um, of the Old Testament is something that's been sort of forgotten or ignored nowadays. Um, and he believes that the lack of this necessary interpretation uh, has given a sort of um, faulty notion of or playing down the role of worship uh, and adoration and the necessity of sacrifice. And this has had an effect on the, one's view on the theology of the priesthood, especially the cultic uh, aspect of the priesthood. So Benedict begins to talk about these things in, in bringing to light, the, 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 in his own words, the fundamental exegetical structure that allows a correct theology of the priesthood. And he explains in the second part of his short study, he applies this hermeneutic to the study of three texts, which we shall look at a little bit later on. Um, According to Benedict, the priesthood of Jesus Christ causes us to enter into a life that consists 
of becoming one with him and renouncing all that belongs only to us. For priests, this is the foundation of necessity of celibacy, but also of liturgical prayer, meditation on the word of God, and the renunciation of material goods. So Benedict begins by looking at what he calls the elaboration of the New Testament priesthood in Christological and pneumatological exegesis. Exegesis is, uh, if you like, the explanation of uncovering of the meanings of uh, sacred scripture. Christological with emphasis in Christ. Pneumatological is pneuma it refers to the spirit. Um, well, Benedict begins by talking about the um, the early church. And in fact, he goes before that to Jesus and the early his disciples and disciples and apostles. He said that originally it was a movement for for laymen, and he said at least in the pre-Paschal period, and to some extent it, it resembled the Pharisees. And he says this is why you find that there's there's conflict with the Pharisees, and it's only been. Uh, the time of the last Passover when our Lord goes to Jerusalem that uh, there's conflict with the priestly aristocracy of the temple the Sadducees and this led to our Lord's death trial, death and resurrection and we should note here that the temple priesthood of the, of the Jews it was hereditary you had to be descended from a family of priests and if you were not then you could not become a priest. So there's a change. We can see that with the New Testament priesthood, the priesthood established by Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, that there's a change from being the priesthood being hereditary to something being as a vocation. And we'll discuss that a little bit later as well. And Benedict then goes on to talk about some essential ministerial structures of the beginnings of the church, if you like, of the community of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about, well, the first word he discusses is apostolos. Apostolos. This is a, a painting of St. James the Great by Guido Reni from about 1636 to 1638. Well, apostolos, in the Greek world, uh, Benedict explains, apostle is a technical term, it belongs to the language of political institutions. And he says that in pre-Christian Judaism, the word was used to interconnect a secular function of an envoy, responsibility to God and religious significance. So in, in that context, it designates someone, an envoy, is authorised by God and appointed for a task, apostolos. That's where our word apostle comes from. The next word, another Greek word, um, episkopos. Um, and sort of in everyday Greek, Benda explains that episkopos indicates the functions which are associated with tasks of a technical and financial nature but it also had a religious sense that is as protector um, and sometimes it's used in connection with the gods 
and um, he indicates that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses the word episkopos in these two senses, as they were used in the, the, the Greek world. Uh, and then the next word he looks at, where our presbyter comes from, priest, um, presbyteros. Um, he says that although among the Christians of Gentile origin, the term episkopos is most often used to refer to ministers, the word presbyteros, he says it's characteristic of the Judeo-Christian milieu. In Jerusalem, you know, the Jewish tradition of the elders considers a sort of institutional organ which developed rapidly to the point of becoming an initial form of Christian ministry. And that's quite interesting. So we had the church then, the community grew, Jews and Gentiles, the foundation of the church. We had the development of the threefold ministry, bishops, priests and deacons. And Benedict indicates that already uh, these are mentioned in Ignatius of Antioch in the late first century. And he says, to this day there has been expressed appropriately the ministerial structure of the Church of Jesus Christ, both terminologically and ontologically. So Benedict then makes some initial conclusions from his brief discussion of these three words connected with ministerial structures of the first community of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he says that the lay character of Jesus' first movement and the non-cultic, non-priestly character of the first ministries do not proceed from an anti-cultic and an anti-Jewish choice. A robber is not rejecting the use of cult and of priesthood. Of course, we can look in the letters of Hebrews, for example, to show that this is not the case. Um, and in St. Paul as well. And I think in the letters of St. Peter. Um, of course, there were other lay movements too, like the, the, um, the Essenes as well, you know, who were not connected with the temple, the Herodian temple. Benedict says it was not a matter of denying the priesthood, but rather, this is crucial, but rather of reconstituting it in its pure, correct form. It says, similarly, in the Jesus movement, it is absolutely not a question, not a question of desacralization, delegalization, or rejection of the priesthood and hierarchy. You remember was in one of the Psalms, which also appeared in the New Testament. Thou art a priest forever. Thou art a priest according to Melchizedek of old, which is said of our blessed Lord. That's a good example of the Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. And also Bendit mentions that you know in the Old Testament you had the prophets who were who criticized worship. Um, and this was discussed, as Benedict mentions in his book, Spirit of the Liturgy. But the criticisms were aimed at the way that the worship was carried out, not about worship of God in itself, which is it's a command, of course, to worship uh, Almighty God. And, um, and these criticisms of worship were taken up again, says Benedict, by Stephen, St. Stephen, 
and St. Paul, who links them with the new cultic tradition of Jesus' Last Supper. So Jesus, according to Benedict himself, had repeated and approved the prophet's critique of worship in particular on the subject of the difference of opinion concerning the correct interpretation of the Shabbat, of the, the Sabbath. Um, and also another aspect is Jesus' um, relationship with uh, the temple. That's all the, the minor orders and the major orders leading up to priesthood. And there's a reconstruction of the, the temple, the Herodian temple uh, at Jerusalem. Well, Bentley goes on to, to show that, um, for example, for the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, it shows that his family was observant, that he himself participated in the devotion of his family. The words that he addressed to his mother, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Expresses the conviction that the temple represents in a special way the place where God dwells and therefore the appropriate place for the Son to dwell. And then Bede talks about the various pilgrimages and visits that our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ made to the temple. And then uh, he goes on interestingly to discuss um, the cleansing of the temple. It's the next slide here. And that's a painting by Nicholas Colombel, who died in 1717, Christ expelling the money changers from the temple. The, 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 the painting is actually 1682. And Jesus, according to Benedict, intended to introduce a fundamentally new emphasis. He says, the interpretation whereby the sole intention of this gesture of Jesus was to combat abuses and thus to confirm the function of the temple is inadequate. It's not just that. Benedict says that in St. John's account of this, we find words that interpret Jesus' action as a prefiguration of the destruction of this building of stone, which was to be replaced by his own body as a new temple. We spoke about that in our talks on the liturgical theology of Benedict. The altar is a new temple. Christ is the temple, is a new temple. He replaced the, the old uh, temple. And therefore, um, the destruction of the temple led to the new temple uh, of perfect worship of our Lord and Saviour uh, Jesus Christ and um, the formation of an organisation of a new and definitive worship. So Bengi says in this sense the cleansing of the temple is the announcement of a new form of divine adoration and consequently it concerns the nature of worship and of the priesthood. And then Benedict says that the, the Last Supper, the offering of the body and blood of Jesus Christ uh, on, the, on the night before he died, is, is decisive for an understanding of what Jesus intended or rejected in the subject of worship. But 
he, he also says that it's important to emphasize that Jesus here adopts the tradition of Sinai and thus represents himself as the new Moses. Remember earlier we saw that painting we had uh, Moses at one side, the staff with the serpent, another side we had the crucified Christ. Christ is the new Moses, but also suspended the hope of the new covenant, which was formulated in a particular way by Jeremiah. So our Lord um, is the new Moses, and it says it's necessary indeed to consider that this Jesus, who stands in the midst of his disciples, is also the one who gives himself to them in his flesh and in his blood, thus anticipating the cross and the resurrection. Now the crucifixion, um, crucifixion in itself by Roman soldiers was not an act of worship in their part, it was an execution. But Christ has transformed that cruel deed into an act of loving sacrifice. It says the fact that Jesus gives himself forever as food during the, the Last Supper signifies the anticipation of his death uh, and resurrection. This signifies the transformation of an act of human cruelty into an act of love and self-giving. Thus we understand what St. Augustine calls in the Church the transition from the Last Supper to the morning sacrifice. The Last Supper is a gift that God grants us in the love of Jesus who forgives. Uh, humanity in turn can receive this gesture of love from God and return it to God. There's much discussion uh, on these topics um, in volume 2 of Jesus of Nazareth by Pope Benedict where he explains how this new foundation of worship and with it of the priesthood is already completely accomplished uh, in St Paul. So the notion of, of the sacrifice of Christ which we saw in our talks on the liturgical theology of Benedict, the notion that love and sacrifice are together the sacrifice is taken to another level by Christ and the cross is something which um, is particularly important also for the priesthood, for, the, for our Lord's institution of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And as I said, as Benedict goes on to explain, the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem was accepted by God in a positive way. There are no more walls because, says Benedict, the risen Christ has become for mankind the space in which to adore God. The Christian ministries of Episcopos, Presbyteros, Diaconos, and those that were regulated by the Mosaic law, that's the high priests, the priests and the Levites, from now on stand openly side by side. The former can, says Benedict, now be identified in relation to the other in a new clarity. Indeed, the terminological equivalence comes about rather quickly. Episcopos designates high priest, presbyteros the priest, and diakonos the Levite. And Bendy points out, you see this, for example, uh, in the Catechesis of Baptism by um, St. Ambrose, uh, who's referring to older mortals, and also in the letter of St. Clement to Rome, 
um, around the year 96, his first letter to the Corinthians. I'll just cite that for you now, as Benedict does in his book. We are obliged, says Clement, to carry out in the fullest detail what the Master commanded us to do at stated times. <clears throat> he has ordered the sacrifices to be offered and the services to be held, and this not in a random or irregular fashion, but at definite times and seasons. Special functions are assigned to the high priest, special mission is imposed upon the priests, and special ministrations fall to the Levites. The layman is burned by the rose laid down for the laity, around 96 AD, very early indeed. And then, well, as Benedict explains, based on what, for example, Pope Clement said, and Ambrose in his, in his um, catechesis and baptism, we see the emergence of the Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. Um, and he says, this is how the Old Testament was able to become and to remain the Bible of the Christians. This interpretation, he says, is described as an allegorical form. And we discussed uh, allegory uh, quite a bit, as a matter of fact. And this is another very interesting painting. Uh, allegory, again, of the Old and New Testament. Um, it's by Garofalo. Uh, who lived around from 1481 to 1559. This painting comes from Ferrara in Italy. It was painted between 1528 and 1531 as an between the synagogue and the church. Um, it's actually uh, in a museum in Russia, in the Hermitage uh, Museum. Fascinating painting. You can see, you can see the mass at the bottom there, and then there's the the, the high priest of the uh, of, of the of Judaism, and then you have all sorts of different um, parallels there and, and uh, allegory as well. So Benedict says that the Christological and pneumatological spiritual interpretation was described as allegorical from a historical literary perspective. Now he says something very interesting about that, bearing in mind the importance of allegory uh, in interpretation of the Bible and interpretation of the liturgy. He says, but it is obvious that we must read, that is discern in it, in this um, Christological pneumatological interpretation uh, the reason for the profound novelty of the Christian interpretation of the Old Testament. Here, allegory is not a literary means of making the text applicable to new purposes. It is an expression of a historical transition that corresponds to the internal logic of the text. Remember, uh, um, I think it was part one of my talk on allegory uh, and the liturgy, my photograph of the iceberg. Well, on the top of the iceberg, you only see so much because there's, there's quite a lot underneath 
below the sea, which you don't see. So I think this is what Benedict means. This, the allegory is not just a literary device to illustrate something, indicate something. It's an expression of historical transition that corresponds to the internal logic of the text. Fascinating. And then um, Benedict talks about the cross of our Lord and Saviour, uh, Jesus Christ, as an act of radical love in which the reconciliation really is accomplished between God and the world, marred by sin. The cross and the body of Christ have become the new temple. And um, at the time of the resurrection, and in the celebration of the Eucharist, uh, Benedict explains, uh, the church and even humanity assistively drawn into this process and involved in it. In the cross of Christ, the critique of worship by the prophets definitively reaches its goal, that is, it becomes true worship. Worship, as St John tells us, in spirit and in truth. Even so, a new worship is instituted at the same time. The love of Christ, which is always present in the Eucharist, is the new act of adoration. Consequently, the priestly ministries of Israel are annulled in the service of love, which always signifies concomitantly the adoration of God. This new unity of love and worship, of critique of worship and glorification of God in the service of love, is certainly an unprecedented task that has been entrusted to the Church and that each generation must accomplish anew. Well, Benedict said that this new mythological spiritual development beyond the Old Testament letter underwent some criticism and here we have uh, Martin Luther who based his teaching uh, completely in a different understanding of the, the Old Testament. Um, for this reason he interpreted the Old Testament worship and the priesthood that was de designed for it solely as an expression of the law. Now for him the law was not God's path of God's grace but was opposed to it. He was therefore compelled to set up a radical opposition between the New Testament ministerial offices and the priesthood as such. And then Mendy indicates that at the time of the Second Vatican Council, the opposition between ministries and priesthood became absolutely unavoidable for the Catholic Church as well. Indeed, allegory as a pneumatic spiritual transition from the Old to the New Testament had become incomprehensible, says Benedict. He says that the decree of the, the Council and the ministry and life of priests hardly deals with this question at all. Uh, nevertheless, says Benedict, in the period that followed thereafter, it monopolised their attention with an unprecedented urgency, and it turned into a crisis of the priesthood that has lasted to this day uh, in the church. Benedict said that he himself, at a conference in the priesthood that was held not long after um, the Second Vatican Council, um, that he, he said he thought that I had to present the priest of the New Testament 
as one who mediates on the Word and not as a craftsman of worship. He said it is true that mediation on the Word of God is an important and fundamental task of the priest of God in the New Covenant. Even so, this Word was made flesh. The Word was made flesh. To mediate on it always means also to be nourished by the flesh that is given to us the Most Holy Eucharist as bread from heaven. To mediate on the Word in the Church of the New Covenant always amounts to abandoning oneself to the flesh of Jesus Christ. This abandonment implies accepting our own transformation by the cross. The Mary goes on to look at um, various stages and the, the concrete developments of the ministry uh, in the history of the church. And um, then talks about the Acts of the Apostles, the Apostles of Preaching. Um, and then we had men chosen to be the, the, the first deacons to minister to the poor so the Apostles could get on with that important ministry of prayer and service to the world to which they were should be entirely devoted to with the example of Saint Stephen of course in the Acts of the Apostles and at this point it says that there's a particular problem that's remained crucial to this day um, formerly as we've seen in the priestly hierarchy of Israel um, that uh, one became priest because you were born into it, born into a priestly family. But the new ministries established by our Lord uh, was not based on hereditary, um, often family and hereditary ties, but was a vocation given by God. And he says that even early on, the problems, problem of vocations, in a sense, affected the church. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into the har his harvest. Matthew uh, 9 verse 38. In every generation, says Benedict, the church is moved by the hope and concern of finding those who are called. We know how great a labour and why this question still is for the church. So it looks as if there's nothing new under the sun. But God does provide for his church. The church has just to remain faithful to the sacred priesthood. God will provide for his church. Also, he said there was another issue arose. He says very quickly, we do not know exactly when, but in any case, very rapidly, says Benedict, the regular and even daily celebration of the Eucharist become, became essential for the church. The substantial bread is at the same time the daily bread uh, of the church. Um, he said this had an important consequence. Um, he says that in, in the common awareness of Israel, priests were strictly obliged to observe sexual abstinence during the times when they led worship and were therefore in contact with the divine mystery. So this relationship between sexual abstinence and divine worship it was clearly there in the Old Testament. Um, and he says that since the priests of the Old Testament had to dedicate themselves to worship only during set times, marriage and the priesthood were incompatible. 
But because of the regular and often even daily celebration of the Eucharist, the situation of the priests in the, the Christian church of our Lord, that changed, that changed radically. From now on, the entire life, the entire life of the priest is in contact with the divine mystery. So there's, there has to be an exclusivity in relation with God, and that breaks from all ties to do with marriage because it involves one entire life. And also with the daily celebration of the Eucharist, it implies, says Benedict, the permanent state of service uh, to God. Um, he says very interestingly here, we can say that the sexual abstinence that was functional was transformed automatically into an ontological abstinence. Uh, service is, is connected with the priesthood and it does have an effect uh, on the, the being of the priest who is dedicated wholly to God so it's complementary with the priesthood. Um, and of course there's criticism about this isn't there uh, about you know cult and sexual abstinence that say oh you, want to be, you, you happen to be married in order to say mass and what have you but he says that nowadays um, some scholars too readily uh, make the facile statement, says Benedict, that all this was just a result of a contempt for corporality, corporality and sexuality. And he says that, um, you know, this critique should be rejected. He said it was rejected in a decisive way by the fathers of the church who put an end to it for a certain time. As in the Manichees who thought that the body was evil and the soul was good. Let's put it in a very simplistic manner, but it gives you an idea. And of course, that heresy reared its head again, you know, in a renewed form, should I say, in the 13th century. And it led to, for example, the foundation of the Dominicans combat it and he said that this that that, that uh, celibacy is wrong because it's an attack on corporality and sexuality he says such a judgment of consecrated celibacy is wrong to prove this it is enough to recall that the church has always considered marriage uh, as a gift granted by god ever since the earthly paradise however involves the whole man the whole person in marriage, the whole gift of self in marriage, and it does not seem possible to carry on the two vocations simultaneously. Thus the ability to renounce marriage, to place oneself totally at the Lord's dis disposition, becomes a criterion for Christian ministry. And then um, Benedict talks a little bit about in the early church there were men who were married who became priests but they had to abstain from from sexual activity and they had met, so they had the so-called Josephite marriage based on the marriage of, of, of Joseph and Mary and then eventually single men of course for eminently practical reasons uh, were chosen to be um, to be priests I think um, that it's very good that Benedict tackles the notion of celibacy from this angle to say, no, it doesn't undermine human sexuality. 
Um, and the importance we think also of chastity within marriage as well, that one is a priest is free to give oneself entirely to God. And also, you could also add in service to others. But that, I think it's very good of him and brave of him and necessary for him to say that this is, this is a fundamental reason for celibacy. Because, there, as I said at the beginning, there are other reasons, spiritual, and you could even say, I would say, theological reasons why celibacy is a good thing, which has us right back to the New Testament. Well, the second part of Benedict's section, he looks at three texts uh, that clarify the Christian notion of the priesthood. Uh, and he says it reveals the, the profound unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the transition from the temple of stone to the temple which is the body uh, of Christ. And the first text it's Psalm 16, verses 5 to 6. Um, in the traditional liturgy, and Benedict really experienced this, um, there was a ceremony of the tonsure, so of your hair was cut off, um, and it was a sign that you entered the clerical state at that time. And, was, and the words from Psalm 16 were repeated by the bishop, and then repeated by the candidate. Um, Dominus pars hereditatis mei ecalicis mei, tu es qui restitues hereditatem mei amici. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my Lord. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a goodly heritage. And as Benedict says, the psalm expresses exactly in the Old Testament what it signifies later on in the church acceptance into the priestly community. Uh, it said that um, this passage recalls that all the tribes of Israel, you know, in the Old Testament, as well as each family, represented the heritage of God's promise to Abraham. This was expressed concretely in the fact that each family obtained as its inheritance a portion of the promised land which he became the owner. Actually, particularly important with the story uh, it mentions of Naboth in the first book of Kings, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 29, and Naboth and Naboth refused to give his vineyard away to, to King Ahab, even though he was the king was going to reimburse him because this was part of his portion, part of his lot. A vineyard was quite valuable, uh, potter land, and, and then we had poor old Naboth stoned to death there in that medieval um, illustration. Now, interestingly, Benedict points out that whereas each Israelite had at his disposal uh, attractive land that assured him of what he needed uh, in order to live. The tribe of Levi had a peculiar feature, the priestly tribe. Because the Levite lived only by God and for God. Uh, in practice, this implies that he had to live according to precise norms 
when the sacrificial offerings to Israel set aside for God. So, this is this is this is the the Old Testament prefiguration, which was fulfilled in a different way, in a deeper way, in a new way, in the in the church, in the New Testament, the New Testament priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul spells this out. He says the apostle, you know, lives in what God gives him, but he himself gives him the word of God, that is our authentic bread and our true life. New Testament the Levites. Um, they um, renounce possession of land and Benedict says that in the New Testament this privation is transformed and renewed priests, be priests because they are radically consecrated to God renounce marriage and family and they become clergy in the sense it means to renounce a self-centered life to accept God alone as the support and guarantee of one's own life. So God is our portion uh, and our cup. Um, and this is quite an important text, uh, this text from Psalm 16 for Pope Benedict, and he preached on it in a Lenten retreat in 1983 for Pope St. John Paul II in the Roman Curia. I'm just going to quote a little bit from that uh, retreat. He said that Psalm 16, like Psalm 119, is a strong pointer to the necessity. For only so can we become a home with it, and can it become our home. Here again, the liturgy and the theology of Ratzinger. He says the community aspect of liturgical prayer and worship necessarily connected with this comes out here where Psalm 16 speaks of the Lord is my cup verse 5 in accordance with the language usual in the Old Testament this reference is to the festive cup which would have been passed round from hand to hand at the sacrificial meal or to the fatal cup the cup of wrath or salvation the New Testament priest uh, who prays um, the psalm can find indicated here in a special way the chalice by means of which the Lord in the deepest sense has become our land, our inheritance, the Eucharistic chalice in which he shares himself with us as our life. Absolutely fascinating uh, reference there. The Lord is my portion and my cup. What shall I give the Lord for his goodness to me? The cup of salvation I shall raise. I shall call on the name of the Lord. That's from one of the other Psalms, which are recited by the priest in tradition right before he consumes the precious blood when he takes the chalice in his hands. And Pope Benedict mentions he had vivid memories of meditating on this, on this verse of Psalm 16 and the eve of receiving the tonsure. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my Lord. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a goodly heritage. The next and second text is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, 8, and, and chapter 18, verses 5 to 8. 
Um, and these words were incorporated into in the new rites, the new mass, in the second Eucharistic prayer, which for some time was attributed to Saint Apollotus, who we see here, an icon of Saint Apollotus. Um, it would be fascinating to pause at this point and to give you a commentary on why doubt has been poured on and indeed on the origin, it seems to be of Eastern origin, uh, the text. But anyway, that's something for another day. But I want to talk about, um, because the text attributed to Politus is an ancient text, and therefore it is of value. Um, as I said, um, whether or not it's of St. Politus, uh, it's old. And we find the words, We offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the cup of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence, to be in your presence and minister to you. And here, Ratzinger casts his liturgical eye and say, Well, it doesn't mean as some liturgists would have us believe that even during the Eucharistic prayer, the priests and the faithful ought to stand uh, and not to kneel. But it says we can deduce the correct understanding of the sentence if we consider that it's taken literally from Deuteronomy chapter eight, chapter 10, verse 8, and from chapter 18, verses 5 to 8, where the essential cultic role of the tribe of Levi is mentioned. I'll just read uh, verse 5 there. At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name. Verse 8, For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. To stand before God and to serve him in Deuteronomy, it says, Benedict says to define the essence of the priesthood stand before God and to serve him and then they were incorporated into what we now know as well a version of um, the prayer the text written by Hippolytus in the, these well allegedly Hippolytus in the second Eucharistic prayer and um, what was said formally says Benedict about the tribe of Levi and concerned it exclusively applies now to the priests and bishops of the church. So the words astare coram te et tibi ministrare, to be in your presence and minister to you, do not envisage an exterior attitude. They represent, says Ben, a profound um, point of unity between the Old and New Testament, describing the very nature of the priesthood. The final analysis has been it. The words remind us of the fact that we all stand before God. And then Benedict mentions that he tried to interpret this text in the homily he gave in St. Peter's as Pope on Holy Thursday, 2008. And it's quite a, um, a long excerpt, as a matter of fact. And I'll leave you, my dear people, um, to read that excerpt for yourselves. Um, 
but um, I would like to just look at what Benedict said in that homily uh, on Deuteronomy. He says, what was considered, uh, he says, um, what was considered here as a duty of monks, you know, just to, 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 to remain standing, to be in the presence of God, we can rightly see also an expression of um, the priestly mission and a correct interpretation of the word of Deuteronomy. The priest must be on the watch. He must be on his guard in the face of the menacing power of evil. He must keep the world awake for God. He must be the one who remains standing upright before the trends of time, upright in truth, upright in the commitment for good. So I'll leave you to read the rest of that. And it's got um, liturgical, has it got a certain liturgical flavour here? Um, so that's for you to read. Now, the third text, the final text um, chosen by Benedict. Verse 17 from the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. It's an interpretation of priestly ordination. And here we have Christ taking leave of the Apostles by Duccio di Buoni Senna, who lived 1255 to 1319. This picture dates between 1308 and 1311. Um, and of course, this was the words of our Lord spoken to his disciples on the eve of his passion. And he says that um, he wants to reflect on these of several words from chapter 17. He said that these words on the eve of his own priestly ordination were particularly engraved on my heart. Um, and he mentions that actually in volume two, he goes of Jesus of Nazareth, he goes into details uh, about the various elements of, of the great priestly prayer, but he wanted to limit himself in this book to verses 17 and 18. Here's the text. Consecrate them or sanctify them in your, the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The word holy says Benedict, saint, root of sanctity, expresses God's particular nature. He alone is the Holy One. We say that too in the Gloria of the Mass. A man can only become holy to the extent that he begins with God. And this journey of becoming holy, it can be a painful journey. But he says we can also understand it um, by the term to sanctify. And he says to mean in a very concrete way uh, priestly ordination in the sense that it implies a radical transformation into the, and to serve God. Um, he says when the text is sanctified in some cases it says to consecrate them in the truth. The Lord is asking the Father to include the twelve in his mission to ordain them as priests, consecrate, sanctify them in the truth. 
And Benedict says here, it seems to me that here there's a discrete reference to the rite of priestly ordination uh, in the Old Testament. The ordinant was, he was purified physically by a complete washing before putting on the sacred vestments. Uh, and this is symbolic and this purification is a purification now in the truth of Christ himself. And Benedict says, he is also the new garment. Christ put, is the new garment. Put on the new man. You hear it sometimes at clothing in, in the religious community. Put on the new man. Uh, put on Jesus Christ, in other words. Uh, as Paul says in Galatians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And Benedict concludes by saying, thus on the eve of my ordination, a deep impression was left in my soul of what it means to be ordained a priest. And overcome by Christ, to be overcome by Christ, so that he is the one who speaks and acts in us, and less and less we ourselves it appears to me clearly, says Bendy, that this process, which consists of becoming one with him and renouncing what belongs only to us, lasts a whole lifetime and continually includes liberation and painful renewals. In this sense, he says, the words of John 17:17 17, 17, pointed out to me the way that I have walked throughout my life. And with this comes the end of the first part of the book and uh, written by Pope Benedict. Um, the second section, of course, is by Carlos Sara. And I encourage you to buy the book, to read both sections uh, of the book. And in fact, in the section written by Carlos Sara, there's quite a few quotations to Pope Benedict XVI and also John Paul II, which I think you'll find quite interesting. I hope you found interesting how the theology of the liturgy um, is something that has seeped into the theology of Benedict as a whole. It's one of these factors as well as uh, the sacred scripture and the fathers. The, the liturgy is, is, a, is, a, is a fount, if you like, for tradition, a fount for, of, of faith because we praise, we believe. And we can see that in action here, in a sense, uh, in the theology of Pope Benedict and on talking about looking at celibacy, perhaps in a new way for many people, you know, to, to, to see how it's connected with the cultic aspect of priesthood. It's something we shouldn't apologize for in the slightest. Uh, so I think we should study very carefully what Benedict XVI has written in this uh, marvelous book, From the Depths of our hearts. And let us pray for Pope Benedict at this time, his brother gravely ill, and for his own uh, health. So now we conclude with a prayer. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, hail our life, our sweetness and our hope. To thee do we cry, we banish children of Eve. To thee we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Turn them, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us, and after this our exile, 
show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, Our Lady, Queen of the clergy, and Mother of priests, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.